So some of y'all have maybe seen the movie or read the book, Les Miserables. I confess that I had the option of reading Les Miserables when I was in high school. It was either that or a book that was about 500 pages shorter. So I think you can guess which one I read. It was not Les Mis. But it has been... Um, not, not translated, reimagined, I guess, into all sorts of theater productions, musicals, movies, etc. And the story more or less goes like this in one particular... And the story more or less... Particular adaptation, I think that's the word I was looking for in the late 90s, um, the movie... ...character who is utterly disheveled and gross and curled up on a, a stone bench, right? Like you're... I mean, I don't know that he was holding a paper bag, but, but this is the picture, right? And he was so just offensive looking, if you will, um, that the townspeople, and he was, he was just looking for help. He was looking for some food to eat or maybe a place to stay. And the people were just, they were afraid of him. He looked scary. And so they were unwilling to help. Finally, he has, you know, slumped over on this bench. And finally, a passerby says, you know, maybe so-and-so at, at this house over here will help you. Why don't you knock um, and see what you can find? So he goes to this door, and he knocks. And the person who opens the door is the town's bishop. It is late, and this bishop is surprised by this late-night visitor. Nevertheless, he listens to his story. And this man, the main character, the protagonist, his name being Jean Valjean, he reveals to the bishop that he's just been re uh, released from prison and he's been marked by the authorities as dangerous. So clearly no reason to worry, right? Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, the bishop decides to welcome into him into his home and even serves him dinner. Well, uh, during the middle of the meal, uh, Valjean is uh, rather impressed by the silverware, like real silverware, not the flatware that most of us use. Um, and in the middle of the night, Valjean remembers this sparkling silver spoon he used to eat soup at dinner. And so he decides, despite the bishop's kindness, that he's going to go steal the silver and head to whatever his next destination is, which he does. Now, in the middle of this, while he's busy collecting all of the silverware, he's making a fair amount of racket, the bishop wakes up, and when they meet face-to-face, -face, Valjean actually hits the bishop, and, like, and by hit, I mean like hits him, knocks him unconscious, and runs with this heavy knapsack of silver. The following morning, the, the maid is upset that they've lost their silverware. The bishop says, so we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything about it. And then there's another knock on the door. It is a John, but this time he's handcuffed and in the presence of police. Looking deeply into Jean Valjean's eyes, the bishop says, I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. There has to be like this moment, right, of a deep breath, what's going to happen next? And the bishop turns to the police officers and he said, didn't he tell you that he was our guest? Yes, said the police officer. Of course he said that after we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed you gave it to him. And then the bishop says, of course, I gave him the silverware. But then he says, I'm mad at you, Valjean, because you didn't take the candlesticks too. That was very foolish. 
Don't you understand that they're worth 2,000 francs? Why did you leave them? Did you forget to take them? And so, of course, the police officers are like, what is happening here? Clearly, something is, one thing does not equal the other. But nevertheless, uh, the bishop persists. He says, no, really, this is, he's been telling you the truth. Leave him with me. And he actually sends the servant to go get the candlesticks and in front of the police officer shoves the candlesticks in Jean Valjean's bag. Well, the authorities leave. They leave Jean Valjean Valjean there, who is absolutely shocked and without a doubt humbled and probably ashamed. And so he asks the bishop, because not only has he stolen the silver, like the last time these two met, he assaulted this bishop, right? (laughs) This is not incidental uh, harm that has been caused. And so he, he looks at him and says, why did you do this? The, the scene, at least in this particular rendition, uh, at this point, the bishop takes Jean Valjean's hood and, and like unmasks him so that he can really see him face to face. And he says to him, don't ever forget that you have promised to be a new man. Well, Jean Valjean at this point has not promised to do any of those things, has not promised to do that. But, but in that moment, in response to that challenge, he makes the promise. And the bishop then lays his hands on Jean Valjean's shoulder and said, as if he's blessing him. And he says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and from hatred. Now I give you back to God. And it is, it is this scene that sort of sets the whole storyline in motion. As you can imagine, it is a pivotal moment in John Valjean's life. In fact, it pivotal meaning turning. It is a turning point, and he starts to live into that promise that just a few seconds before he'd, you know, he'd been a scoundrel stealing silverware and knocking down priests. But when the bishop looks him in his eyes and says, don't forget, you have promised to become a new man. Suddenly that promise like starts to sprout in the movie or the book takes on from there. This week, as we continue in our series, What's So Good About the Good News? Last week, we talked about the part of the gospel. And remember, again, gospel literally means good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Part of the gospel is that we are forgiven for our sins. And that is incredibly good news, right? The the image, again, of how the spider web is what I think of you. As soon as you think you've gotten it off you, you feel it there again. And in Jesus Christ, we really are able to set sin aside because of that forgiveness. But then the next question is, what happens now? So you've been forgiven for stealing the silverware and the candlesticks. Do you, do you just go out and do it all over again? Or is the good news of Jesus Christ that when you have been forgiven, that now there's a chance to do and be more significantly something new?
Spoiler alert, it's the latter. And so the scripture passage that I have uh, included for us today is frankly very similar to the story of Jean Valjean. In fact, I, I don't know Victor Hugo being the individual who wrote the novel. The novel is obviously fictional. I don't know whether or not he had the story of John 8 in mind, but I feel like it's quite possible that he did. Because we have this same story of a person who has made a bad choice, right? Last week we talked about there's no point in pretending sin isn't sin. There's no good news in being forgiven unless you acknowledge just how great it is that you have been set free from that spider web. So this woman, and not only this woman, though we'll get back to that, has engaged in something wrong. She is forgiven for that sin, but even more than that, she is invited by Jesus to become something new. So let's take a look at this passage and dig into it just a little bit deeper. Again, the similarities between this parable, or not this parable because it actually happened in the life of Jesus, but this story and Jean Valjean is very similar in that somebody has been caught doing something no good, and the authorities bring her, in this instance, to the religious authority which happens to be Jesus. And so it's the Pharisees and the scribes. And according to their story, and we have absolutely no idea how this went down, but I can only imagine it isn't good. They drag this woman in front of Jesus and say that she has been literally caught in the act of adultery. Whatever that means and whatever it looked like for her in that moment Obviously, this is not a good day for her on a variety of levels. She's humiliated in addition to the sin, which is now being, you know, hanging around her. And so these Pharisees say, we've caught her in the act, and the law requires the death penalty, is what they say. It requires that she be stoned. And then they say to Jesus, what do you say? Now, there's a couple of things that are irregular about this request from the get-go. And the first is they're appealing to the law, to the rules, right? But the rules actually require that they have two witnesses, which they don't indicate that they have. And the law requires, if you're going by the letter of the law, the law requires the punishment for both of them. I do not see a gentleman standing in the middle of this circle, right? It is only the woman, and they don't present witnesses. They themselves are not following the law while demanding that Jesus tell them to, quote-unquote, follow the law. There is a great irony here, right? Like it reveals the fact that their motives are not what they are pretending for them to be. They are not interested in righteousness or holiness, In fact, the scripture goes on to tell us what they are interested in doing is trapping Jesus so that they have something to use against him. This woman, whom they have theoretically caught in the act of adultery and now drug her in front of Jesus and humiliated her, she is a pawn in their political strategy. No bueno. She may not be the only one here who has sinned, right? And Jesus is about to reveal this. But first he stoops down in the sand and, or in the dust and writes with his finger, there have been all sorts of 
theories, imaginings as to what Jesus was writing in the dust. We can't possibly know, and maybe that's the point. What we do know is it was really his way of dismissing them. It wasn't worth his time. They were asking the wrong question, if you will. Like you come and ask your mom a question, and she ignores you and just keeps stirring the, the, the spot, pot of spaghetti sauce. The message is clear. And yet they just keep on. So he stands up and he says, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he goes back to ignoring them and doodling in the dust, whatever it is that he's writing. The men who now have been their own sin, let's be honest, their own sin, they have been caught in the act of. Slowly leaves, starting from the oldest to the youngest, which I think there's something to be said in that, probably because wisdom indicates we all know that all have sinned. But starting from the oldest to the youngest, they drift away. And then Jesus stands up again and turns to the woman, it is the first time she is addressed. Right? She's, she's just been manipulated. She's a tool in their game. And for the first time, Jesus looks her in the eye and talks to her as if she's actually a human. And he says to her, her where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said, And Jesus says, neither do I, yet go and sin no more. A couple of ways in which this passage is traditionally interpreted, and and neither of them are wrong. I'm just not sure they're full enough. The first is to bop people on the head for being self-righteous and judgmental which incidentally the Pharisees were and deserved to be bopped on the head for that, right? It also is used as a text that focuses on the fact that Jesus does not condemn her and does not bop her on the head, that Jesus offers us forgiveness. This also is true. But one of the lines that I think is often missed, and for me it is the most significant, in verse 11 Jesus says, Go and sin no more. It is not meant to be punitive. If he intended to be punitive and to shame and to punish, he had his opportunity to do that when there were a circle of men ready to throw some stones. But it is his opportunity to say, You have a chance here. It's like he's that bishop looking in Jean Valjean's eyes saying, Remember that you have promised to be a new man, even if Jean Valjean had never done such a thing. Jesus looks at this woman and says, Go and sin no more. Not only are you forgiven, but I am giving you a chance to be something new. It is an invitation, and while he offers it directly to the woman, I believe that he is also offering indirectly to the Pharisees. 
In that single encounter with just a handful of words, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and to the woman, one whose sin is apparent and the other one who, at least according to them, they weren't even aware that they originally had, that this is a turning point. Who are you going to be? And in me, in Jesus, I'm giving you the chance to both be made whole and become something more than you are or even believed that you could be. The interesting thing about Jesus is that not only does he treat the woman, who's the quote-unquote sinner, with dignity— He also values, and this may seem counterintuitive, he values the Pharisees enough to challenge them. Now, again, it's indirect. But he's making a point. He is also offering to them to break their old pattern, not just of being judgmental, but that thinking God and life was about punishment and rules and empty adherence to the law. We see elsewhere in scripture, especially in John, where Jesus is inviting them to a new way of life, that they would be born again, not just dead to sin, but born again. Jesus says elsewhere in John, John chapter three with Nicodemus, he is offering this same invitation to the Pharisees. Because while they maybe haven't explicitly done a thing that is wrong, nevertheless, their whole framework is wrong. That's one of the natures, I think, of sin, is that sin, as Miss Jamie says, it isn't just that we do bad things, but that like our whole matrix is just the calibration is off. And Jesus helps us to recalibrate in such a way that we see and experience and live into the world in the way that it actually is, which is the invitation of new life that Jesus offers the Pharisees. Here's an example or an illustration, if you will, that I ran across. Again, sort of a, a, a modern-day example of this. All this is a true story, unlike Jean Valjean, Jean Valjean which is fictional. Um, there's a pastor, I think he serves down in Texas, Matt Chandler. You've possibly heard of him. He's very famous. When he was a younger man, he and a group of friends invited a young woman to go to a Christian concert with them. And for the sake of this illustration, we'll name her Kim. All right. And she was not a Christian. They invited her to this Christian gospel concert, hoping that this would be a moment of frankly, conversion for her. They wanted to see Kim come into relationship with Jesus. As Matt looks back on that concert, however, he talks about what happened. He describes it as a quote-unquote train wreck. He's grateful for the experience because it taught him what not to do. But more or less, here is a synopsis of the quote-unquote good news that the preacher offered in the middle of this concert. He took the stage. He offered a lot of statistics about bad things you do, and more or less the message was, you don't want to be like that guy, do you? But the sort of pinnacle of his message was this object lesson where he pulled out from behind something or other a freshly cut red rose, probably one that had been picked up the supermarket or a florist that was 
lovely and perfect, and he made all these, you know, like dramatic, uh, making a point of talking about how lovely it was and smelling it and caressing its petals and talking about how beautiful it was and how it had been freshly cut that day. And then he throws it out to the crowd and asks everybody to pass it around. Right? And so he continues talking while this rose is being handed from person to person. I don't know whether it's hundreds or thousands of people, however long he gives them to pass it around. And then he says, now hand it back. And as you can imagine, after it has been palmed by hundreds of people, it is now drooping. Uh, it is wilted. There are leaves that have fallen off, petals that are falling off. He holds up. This is his object lesson for the good news of Jesus Christ. He holds up the rose and says, "Um, now who in the world would want this? And the objects of his metaphor, of course, is don't be a dirty rose. Well, Matt didn't hear from Kim for a few weeks, unsurprisingly, until he actually got a phone call from Kim's mom saying Kim's been in an accident and she's in the hospital, which she did recover, so that's good news. Matt goes to visit her and in the middle of their chat, she says, like really just completely out of nowhere, do you think I'm a dirty rose? I mean, the preacher's metaphor, his illustration had hit home, but was the preacher really preaching the good news. Who did he, what message was he preaching? It wasn't the one of the Pharisees. We get to stoner, right? Or was it the one of Jesus that says, go and sin no more, but also says, neither do I condemn you. In that moment, Matt used the opportunity to you. In that moment, to, to present the whole weight, which is this, Jesus wants the rose. Whether the rose is pretty or ugly, fresh cut or used, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus' desire is to save, redeem, and restore that rose. And even more, guess what? We all be dirty roses. Not just some of us, but all of us in one way or another could look at our lives and say, yeah, I'm a dirty rose. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is both that he wants the rose and that he wants to save and redeem and restore that rose. Hence the, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. I think there's a further element in this that has to be captured, although it is not expressed directly in our John 8 passage, nor is it mentioned in really uh, Jean Valjean's story. For each of them, there is something powerful in the act of forgiveness, something life-changing. You assume, I assume, that in this woman's life, she was never the same. After that encounter with Jesus, after being forgiven, you have to assume, and I hope, that things were different for her. And certainly in the story of Les Miserables, they were for Jean Valjean. But what neither of these stories address is how they get from where they were to where they want to be. And this is where the gospel, 
the good news of Jesus Christ gives us some tangible hope. And it's that Jesus doesn't just tell us to sin no more. When we are in relationship with Jesus, we are given the power and the, the ability to sin no more through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I'm now going to reference a different scripture passage. I'm going to pull from Galatians 5. But this helps flesh out for us the power that exists within those who believe in Jesus to not just do things differently, but to become someone different. And Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16, says this. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, and remember we receive the Holy Spirit when we trust in Jesus Christ, you are, when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery. In case any of those sounded not relevant to your life, get ready for this list. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy. That's a list that I feel like could, could apply to modern day life, yours and mine. Drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, good, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. I always feel some, some, probably it is internal pressure, but I always feel some sort of internal pressure to explain exactly how this happens, right? To take the theoretical and make it concrete. And the thing is, the, the things of God often simply cannot be translated into a material, formulaic world because we are talking about God and the spiritual world, which exceeds, it is not separate from our lives, but it is certainly bigger than what we can experience through our five senses. So I muddle through with metaphors. This is why you always hear me share so many stories. And the one that seemed to help as it relates, for me at least, relates to the presence of the Holy Spirit. J.D. Greer, a pastor actually here in North Carolina, uses the illustration um, of a balloon. There are two ways to keep a balloon up in the air, right? One of them is to use your own breath and then just pound it to keep it in the air. It's a game that elementary school children play, but what eventually happens? Somebody drops it, right? At some point, no matter how much energy you spend or how disciplined you try to be, at some point, the balloon hits the floor. The other way to keep the balloon afloat, according to the illustration, is to fill it with helium. Or, in this metaphor, the spirit of God. 
You can fill it with your own air and try your hardest to keep the balloon afloat. And he says lots of times, this is our approach to religion. We come to church on Sundays to get motivated about smacking our balloon to keep it in the air for the next week. The gift of Jesus is, again, not just that we're forgiven, not even just that we're challenged to be better, but that we are actually given the spirit, the helium that helps us live a new life and rise above whether it be the sin or uh, the, the broken framework that characterizes our life apart from Jesus, in Jesus with the power of Holy Spirit. There really is a new way to soar, a new way to be made alive, a new way to be made free. So again, each of these metaphors are incomplete, and there is not a way in which I can prove to you that this is true. What I can say is that I have experienced it to be true for me. This particular passage, this John 8 passage, was incredibly important for me as a young Christian. Uh, Not just that I was forgiven, but this sense in which God was calling me to something different. It is probably why 2 Corinthians 5.17 was my life verse for a very long time, which is, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, uh, behold, the old has gone And the new has come, and I've already gotten it wrong. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, she or he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. And that, for me, is really, really good news. All right, let's pray. God, thank you that you, like the woman, look into our eyes and say, neither do I condemn you. That is gospel truth, and that is good. That isn't just good news. That is great news. But Lord, it is also good news that you don't just forgive our past, but that you give us the chance of a new future. So, Lord, help us to to be people, whether we are choosing for the first time right now to let ourselves be received and restored and redeemed by Jesus. Or we are in our journey and needing your Holy Spirit to fill up our balloons. Either way, God, we thank you for the gift of new life. We ask, God, that you would help us to receive it. You are offering it. May we choose to say yes. To receive the, the grace, the restorative grace that you offer. To look you back in the eye when you look at us and say, Yes, today I can become a new man or a new woman. We thank you, God through Jesus Christ, for that good news. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.